All right. Josh Smith here, live in my studio, Flat 5. My guest today is a new friend. We actually just hung for the first time in Nashville a couple weeks ago. But I heard his record a, few, a year ago, maybe, uh, called Kiss the Shaman, and it just fucking blew me away. Uh, his guitar playing and his writing is unreal. Also, his drumming, his bass playing. is He's one of those guys that plays everything and makes you just want to jump out a window because he's so good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you you might have heard him play with Paul Simon playing all those instruments. Um, he's also got some really cool records out with Jim Keltner and Steve Gadd and played a, a trio record with Keltner and Goldings that is really, really cool. Man, he's just a great guitar player. He hails from the great state of Connecticut, where I was also born, but he's living in Nashville now. And uh, welcome in, Jim Oblonk. Man, dude, thank you for doing this. Thank you, Josh. Thanks for having me. And uh, hello to all the all your fans and people that follow you. It's great, great to be here today. Yeah, man. Yeah. Well, so I was telling the truth. I heard that record like a year ago. I think I had seen. I'd heard your name definitely and seen little things here and there, but it wasn't until I heard that record that I was just, I was just floored by your composition and your like approach to your voice and finding you really had just, you know, you know it, but you have your own thing. And it just, just blew me away. You're, you're playing and you're writing also the sound of that record. Really, really, really great, dude. It's a, it's a tremendous record. Well, thanks dude. I mean, that's a, that's a record that um, is sort of like, left the center to you know i mean i have some stuff out where it's like more guitar focused but i wanted to make uh, kind of like a rock and roll record or what my version of a rock and roll record would be and even before i started um i called up dave maddox i don't know if you know that drummer who played with fairport convention and he was i don't know him personally but i do know who he is yeah no he is and i and i was just picking his brain about like I didn't want it to sound like, oh, you know, here, here comes 1968 at you or something like that. But I just wanted to pick his brain about um, that era, that late 60s era going into the 70s recording wise. And he spent like two hours with me on the phone. And um, and I, I sort of, um, you know, mostly, you know, we focused on the drum sounds and stuff like that and how people got the drum sounds. And, uh, and I try and... I tried to like, you know, now in 2020, we were, or in the last decade, we have so many options with recording and, you know, like you, you just type in like reverb into your plugins and you have like a hundred different reverbs and it's like, oh my goodness, like what do I use? And so I, I wanted to sort of um, put the handcuffs on myself a little bit and just you know, sort of like not try and chase crazy sounds, but more or less just find really good sounds and then make a statement with the with the music instead of like, you know, sonic candy or something like that. So I'm, I'm glad that you connected with that record because it's it was it was a lot of fun making. And uh, I'm actually starting to make something similar right now where it's sort of like another sort of rock record or something like that. Nice, man. Yeah. When I listen to that record, I hear uh, commitment which is what I'm always, it's like, I hear you had an idea and you went there and it probably went fast. You knew what you wanted. You committed to the sounds and you just right. did it. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's the way yeah. I like to think about music and the way I like to work. And I hear it on that record. Yeah. So, oh, cool, man. Yeah. Cause it, it really was. I mean, I think the, you know, the majority of 
stuff was just recorded within two days and then of course it's like finding mellotron parts after the fact but like the yeah. main meat and potatoes of it was just like a two-day thing you know that that's the kind of that's those are the records that i always seem to connect with ones like that yeah the guy had a clear vision of what they wanted to do and you don't you know waffle about it because like you said we can have uh option anxiety we have so much available to us now that you can be oh i'll fix that in the mix i'll reverb that later i'll do this but if you just settle on the sound then you just perform yeah. and do the job, you know, and that, that yeah. it's always for me a stronger statement. But let's go backwards and give everybody yeah. who doesn't know your music kind of your your story, because I think it's an interesting one. Um, I've been most interested in hearing from people the differences in when they come from a musical family and when they don't. So, you know, I don't come from yeah. a musical family. The guitar was an accident, basically. My dad brought it home okay. on a lark. And he can't even tell you why he did it. He just bought one home. He thought maybe I would like it at six years. Well, I was three, but, and then at six, I started learning. How did the guitar get in your hands or what was first? Yeah. Well, I did. I grew up in an incredibly musical family where uh, my uncles played, uh, my one uncle played bass, uh, drums, and concertina, which is just bizarre, because that's such a bizarre instrument uh, to me. It's like one button is one note going in and another note is on the way out. It's like, it's like scares me. Uh, and then, uh, but my mother played B3, my dad played drums, um, my grandfather played banjo. He was a really good singer and... Uh, so it was like, and then both of my folks were music ed majors and they had a band, a trio that they had played with for like 17 years. And uh, so because they were music ed majors, there was all these instruments in, in the basement. So, you know, and, and uh, there's like a Moog synthesizer. And so basically I just grew up, I just go downstairs and then mess with stuff and try and get a sound out of everything. And uh, that's sort of like played out throughout my life. But that's, and I think it's, it's almost like when little kids learn a language, they, uh, it, it's much easier for them to take it all in. And I think that by trying all these different instruments, it seems like that I settled on the rhythm instruments and uh, like guitar, bass, piano, and drums, those are all technically rhythm instruments. And I think I started to see the similarities between those by, you know, and, and then I tried a saxophone or something. And I was like, this is just bizarre. You know, like you're just, just how that makes sound compared to something that you strike and then like a, the, a string or a membrane vibrates and that's how you get your sound. So, um, and then the, I studied cello for a couple of years when I was um, in elementary school. And then uh, my uncle gave me his precision bass. So I started to take some lessons on bass and then uh and then really it was like around 11 or 12 years old um uh, there wasn't a guitar in the house except for just like an acoustic nylon string uh -huh. and so i asked for an electric and then you know it was sort of like uh with buying cds and stuff i would just go in uh, that's when cd stores had like a cd player running with the cd in so you can go and yeah. demo stuff you know and like and then i Absolutely. i you know, just gravitate it was a fun time actually because I got exposed to uh, music and one of the first records that really connected with me on guitar was that uh, 
Albert Collins, Johnny Copeland, uh, Robert Cray called Showdown, and I still listen Absolutely. to that to this day. It's yeah, a good, Albert it's Collins, a good record. Alligator Records, Showdown. That's, oh. I mean, it's a, a classic. Yeah, and then I I liked classical music too because uh, my mother would play. Uh, she she was a classically trained organist, and so. I did started taking some classical guitar lessons at that time, and, and I think that's what um, is kind of left over why I play a finger style technique as opposed to with a pick. And uh, but that's that's pretty much you know and, and oh the 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 really important part of this story was that because my plan, parents were playing gigs on the weekend, my aunt uh, who I was really close to. She was born in like 1930 and she just lived in a time capsule. So she would bring over like vinyl when she babysat for me each weekend. And then I just grew up with listening to all this great music from, you know, mostly big band stuff, but Frank Sinatra. And so it was a really, really rich uh, music was always played at family get togethers, you know, and, uh, and so it was a very cool, uh, you know, environment to grow up in. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like, like, like one of those perfect storms where, how could you not be a musician coming from that environment? But also, obviously, they didn't force you at all. It was completely natural. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. it was, and 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 it was just sort of, uh, it just sort of like, again, it it just seemed like I had more of a natural connection with the rhythm instruments, and and so that's you know, it just and. That's how it just sort of all came about. Yeah, it, 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 in some ways it feels like I, and I never really made a choice. It was just something that I've done since, I, you know, I was a little kid growing up in that home. So, yeah, you quickly identified with with it as basically just part of your life. It wasn't, yeah, yeah, it wasn't even a conscious decision, pretty much. Right, right. Yeah, which is pretty amazing. Did you have any friends? outside of the house as a kid that were musicians or that you would get together with? Well, um, I mean, yeah, I mean, of, of course, you know, by the time we got to like 12 years old and all of a sudden there's like, you know, we're trying to play Van Halen or Tower of Power, you know, and like really shoddy versions of, you know, but like, and, and luckily, you know, that the house was always sort of like the go-to place because there was always instruments around and amps and stuff uh -huh. like that. So, yeah, absolutely. And then, um, uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was uh, again, you know, then, of course, playing in the school bands and all that kind of stuff, so. What did you play in school band? Um, I'm mainly talking about, like, you know, concert band and you know symphony stuff and like you know so it was like then i played percussion you know in in those school bands and and then uh because there wasn't much place for an electric guitar you know so mm -hmm. but that that's you know that and but that was i think mainly the the cool thing is 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 you know again those family get-togethers and just uh each person was pretty proficient on their instrument too it wasn't like little you know what i mean it wasn't like hobby like they put a lot of time into being able to play those instruments so it was sort of like the bar was set pretty high and in a musical family it was like you know again it was just like duke ellington records around miles davis records buddy miles earth wind and fire like a great vinyl collection downstairs so it was it was sort of like if you're going to be a musician you kind of got to 
plugging in and and you know kind of like there wasn't like a lot of half-ass yeah. idea of you know what i mean yeah yeah and you and you didn't have to go far if you had a question you had a, a bunch of people to go to looking for an answer yeah right yeah. exactly yeah yeah well that's a that's a, gotta be an you know inspiring way to go you just get hooked and like most of us when you get hooked on something you just become obsessed so you progress fast anyways so even if you didn't have that you know once the hook is set the progression starts happening really quick what were the first yeah. gigs were they with family or were they outside of the family oh man i mean i would i played uh in wedding bands starting like when i was 12 on guitar and then um and then and then i kind of moved into playing some jazz drums so then i got some gigs doing that and then um so it was just like kind of like your typical whatever work was available i was trying to get you know and when other teenagers had uh you know jobs at like a shoe store or something like that i was out playing gigs and and actually making pretty good money for a high school kid you know yeah. and so it was, it was pretty it was in some ways it was it was a great uh breeding you know like i guess breed learning ground i should say not breeding ground well in a way right. breeding ground you know but um but you know also too it was like uh at that time th there was just more local music happening anyway where if someone even was a school teacher they could kind of like um a big part of their extra income could f come from just gigs playing around like in the suburbs even. And, and it's, yeah. it's interesting. Like when I leave music centers like Los Angeles or New York or, you know, Nashville and I, or like I go back to visit some family and I'm like, wow, man, there's just really not a lot going on in those places where growing up, it was like, there was clubs all over the place with, you know, there's this one band that used to do Tower of Power that they did a really good job of it. And you can go out here, you know, so it was like growing up, it, it was it was definitely more in the fabric of just everybody's life, live music, you know. Absolutely. And I think we're some of the the tail end of the last generation where that was possible to like. I think so. Yeah. Training as as a kid playing four or five nights a week, you know, being forced to learn how to be a professional by older musicians being forced to learn how to solo all night long to improvise, you know, to be a, a pro basically. Yeah. Th those opportunities yeah. are not available yeah. anymore. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's sad because then it's, it's like, um, and even some moments were like really uncomfortable. Like I used to work with this organ player and his, we we're playing a church dance and his wife saw that my shirt was wrinkled and she was like, what the hell are you doing? She, you know? And like, I got like blasted for like, like I didn't iron my shirt, you know? And I was like, Oh man, like, you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. it was, it was really intense, but not that like, you know, I think the world just has to change and move anyway. But like at that time it really was, I guess you could, it, I guess it's, we're talking about apprenticeship really, where yes. you kind of became an apprentice to some established musician. They took you under their wing. And then it wasn't learning from school. It was just learning out in the, in the, uh, in the world, you know? Absolutely. When I, when I finished high school, to me, it was a completely valid decision to not go to college because number one, I'd been gigging for six years already. 
I was going to yeah. continue gigging. I, and I felt like I was learning way more in that environment than I would have learned at school. And I felt justified in my decision. If I was coming of age right now, I would want to go to college because there's more opportunity to play there now than there. The, yeah. the, the gigs that I had coming out of school don't exist anymore now for, for 18 year old right. me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, no, totally. And, and it's, uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, in, in some ways I, I did end up going to music college and then I was like, well, looking back on, it, I mean, I, I'm glad I have a degree, but it was, I should have, you know, I could have easily just continued playing gigs and I would have been just fine. It was, it was like, I should have got like an English literature degree or something like that, you know, like put the right. time and energy into something else. Cause it was already like, I was already gigging. Your parents being music ed majors though, did that have a big influence on you going to school? Yeah, I think it did. And then um, I had gotten a full scholarship to Berkeley at the time and I, I i only spent a year there but um but that was also like well it was a full scholarship and you know it just it, yeah. again you're like you know it just seemed like the next right thing to do yeah 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 so, so i mean things for you were a very natural progression so when does the 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 you know the page get turned from like wedding bands uh, playing with your family, playing with friends, um, going to school into like, you know, the, the very professional side, you know, like maybe doing records or doing sidemen stuff, um, or, yeah. or even starting to think about your own music. Right. Well, um, in a lot of ways, it, you know, it, it, it was sort of like, I, I feel like, I kind of got ping pong, you know, it was like ping ponged a lot, if, if that's even a description, because it was like, I could do a lot of different stuff. So it felt like it, it was like, um, I kept trying different stuff. And it, and it wasn't until like, I would even say the late 20s, where I, I feel like I kind of found uh, like what I actually liked, you know, and so, but I had made some, uh, you know, uh jazz recordings early on and that was on drums and then i was like man i'm really not connected to this world and i i sort of wanted to get back to focusing on guitar more and so i did that and so it really it probably wasn't uh i mean i'd always worked with really great people but it was never like famous great people i i guess that's the way to sure. put it but I, you know, so I kind of was like kicking around and just playing gigs and doing some teaching and making a living. And then um, I got really interested in playing a frame drum. And so I studied with this guy named Jamie Haddad up in Boston and he actually played in Paul Simon's band. And so oddly enough, frame drum was a big connection with me with the, with the guitar and sort of like sewing those two worlds together because you hold the frame drum on your lap and you play it it's like a hand drum yeah so make a long story short um jamie knew that i played a bunch of stuff and uh we we connected and then paul simon needed um uh, a music teacher for his son so i got recommended to paul simon so i taught at paul simon's house for like i don't know five or six years just hanging with 
the his son and uh, just hanging with the family there. And then that's what eventually led to me working with him. So, but it was almost like, I will say this is that, you know, I'd even play gigs with uh, these world retired World War II veterans. A couple of guys played in like the old big bands. And so it was almost like, even though before I started working with Paul Simon, I may not have worked with like, you know, incredibly famous people. That was sort of like all those experiences when I eventually did end up working with him, it, it really did. Um, I felt like I had a lot to bring to the table. It just wasn't one dimensional. So yeah. it's sort of like, you know, that was, you know, it's pretty hilarious because it's like, you know, you would think that there was be other smaller gigs that would lead up to the Paul Simon thing, but just with right. my roadmap, it was like, you know, being like a trench musician and then all of a sudden, I'm, you know, I'm into this other different paradigm. So that's, that's how it worked for me. It's crazy. I mean, everybody, has their own path and of course there is just that random aspect of life you know that just things happen and you know a left turn turns out to be the right turn you know i guess yeah i mean it's like i, mean, I was living in new york my car got stolen and i was like man i don't think i I'm, i think i'm gonna you know live back in connecticut for a little bit and just kind of recoup and then paul simon buys a house in connecticut and then is looking for a teacher and so it was almost like you know, so the frame drum is the thing that led me to meeting Paul <laughs> Simon. You know, I mean, like that is literally me. Yeah. But it goes back to what you're talking about, though, is, is that like, I just, um, I feel like, and maybe even Keith Richards said something along this line. It's like, I just wanted to chase what I felt like was real and cool. And if it led to like bigger stuff, that would be great. And if it didn't, I would still be chasing what I loved. And I don't want yeah. that to sound, you know, maybe it sounds corny or something like that, but like really it was like, I became really interested in the frame drum and just the fact that every culture has a version of this one-sided drum and you can sort of, uh, and, and so in some ways I'd like to believe that if, if you're really, if anyone is really clear and their intentions are sort of pure, mm -hmm. that, that does over time lead to good stuff for you. I think so. And uh, this pandemic has been an eye opener in the, uh, in the respect that, you know, we've all got friends who are lifelong musicians, some really great ones who have now maybe not touched their instrument for six months. And that's something I can't relate to. It's like, yeah, what? I can't go a day, you know? And it is, it's like, yeah. it lets you know that there is differences and, some people would do this no matter what. And we're seeing it right no now. Matter, yeah. This is the no matter yeah. what, you know? Yeah. No matter what. And, it, and it's like, and I think the thing that I quote that I wrote, read from Keith Richards, he was like, you know, 98% of a lot of the music, you know, it, it maybe it's commercial or there's, there's other elements in it where something like, you know, folk music, I, I don't want to get into, you know, I don't want to, uh, be negative about any forms of music because if people enjoy it I'm you know it's like it's not really my place to compartmentalize but I think his point was like if you really shoot for the stuff that you connect with and that it's real then even if the, the whole music world goes away like I would still always at the end of the day be with a frame drum just really love it you know yeah yeah, well, that's 
you know, an inspiring attitude to have. And it's the reason why you're so, you know, good and, and, and why you've put in the work to be good on multiple fronts because it, it it's not a job to you. It's, it's a love thing. It's yeah. something you have to do, you know, and I feel right. the same way, certainly. So, okay. Sure. So you start, you start working with Paul. What's it like when you get in the studio with Phil Ramone? Because to me, that's, that's incredible. Oh man, it was really, it was really awesome. And, um, that might've been, you know, I mean, it was all a great time period, but since he, just the stories that he had were amazing. And a lot of times, like on uh, the record I made with Paul was called so beautiful or so what a lot of the, I mean, the times that I was in the studios with him, it, it was usually like Phil Ramone, me, Paul, and then Vincent, um, who passed away, this African guitar player. But a lot of the days, it would just be the three of us, and then Paul would be working in the studio with Andy Smith, the engineer. Like, we would record. And then I'd just have lunch with Phil and just hang out and drink coffee with Phil. So I just picked his brain about, like, how they got bass drum sounds, like, in, the, in those... Because I always thought, like, the bass drum sounds on, like, Frank Sinatra records were always really cool sounding. Like, I mean, everything sounded great, but I was like, wow, and you're recording this with, like, minimal microphones. So I would just, and he and he was really open with all of his information. And a lot of it, you know, what was cool about Phil, I mean, he even had a ladder built with, like, a little platform that he would lay on, and then, like, people would wheel it around, and he would just be listening to the, the sound sources and picking what he thought sounded the best. And then that's where they would place the microphone. And, you know, it was just like, and then even before he was a musician, he used to, he told me stories about um, driving cars, like for a car dealership from like New York down to Miami, then like blowing all the money and then hitchhiking back to New York. And, you know, just like really cool. So, so that that was amazing, you know. It, it was it was an honor to work with with uh, with him and Paul together, and uh, I, I can't say enough about it, really, because he was he he was just uh, I don't even know how to describe him. He's so important, you know. Oh yeah, I mean that's talk about an education. Just like sponging that stuff up, that's some some awesome you know yeah. just magic stuff to be able to just pick his brain or even just see him, you know, the stuff you learn just watching a guy do his job is so fascinating. It's, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So when you were making that record. Yeah. And a lot of times. Yeah. No, please continue. Go ahead. No, go oh, ahead. no, no. Go, go, go for it. I was just going to say. I, no, I, I was, I was just going to say that. <laughs> go, Josh. <laughs> the wonders of the internet. <laughs> yes oh i was just gonna ask, i was gonna ask when you were making that record um you know and it's the three or four of you in the studio how you decided to build up tracks would you go out there and play drums and start stacking yeah. things up or would you start on guitar would would vincent play something or paul say, was it just completely spur of the moment it was it was kind of crazy because each session was completely different like where one thing vincent brought in an idea and then another time paul had an idea and like um like paul had this acoustic riff um going and uh and there was a really cool tune called the afterlife and uh from that so beautiful or so what so yeah it, i think that like 
it was more like some musical idea was brought to the table, some rhythm would go with it, and then, you know, two weeks would go by and I'd get another call from Paul or Phil and it'd be like, come back to the studio, you know? So they would like suss stuff out and, and, it, and it, was, it was made over a period of time like that. I, mean, I almost want to say a, a little bit, you know, maybe about a year worth of, of working on that record where it was right. just sort of, again, you know, I, I wouldn't hear anything for three weeks and then I'd get a call and then I'm back into the studio with those guys again. So that's how it happened. That's a process that not a lot of us can relate to, the freedom to make a record over time like that <laughs> yeah. with a person like Phil Ramone in a big studio, yeah. you know, you know, with no yeah. restrictions. It, right. It, you again, again, we talked about having too many choices, but also there's a freedom that comes from that that allows you yeah. to just hit on shit that you would never even have a chance to attempt, which is pretty special. Yeah, and it was... It was interesting to see too, like I, I just learned, a, I think the two things that I learned, which were really important things, like Paul's really meticulous about like what, um, what sounds he chooses. And even like he gets really obsessive about small stuff, like about shakers and will tr try like five different shakers to find something that goes with the acoustic guitar the best you know what i mean and like and and it was really interesting um that was probably the greatest thing that i learned from him is just all these paying attention to these small details at the end of it, it starts to build up and then you have a full kind of musical picture that like really makes sense and it gels and then uh, i think the thing that i learned from phil is just how much he sort of trusted his ears on stuff where if he liked it he'd be like no that's great and even if Paul didn't like it, he would defer to Phil most of the times. It was just like, if Phil likes it, it's cool. And then, you know, and that was interesting to watch too, where it's like, I feel like if somebody gave me a year to make a record, I would go insane with just myself without having, you know, like a guy to like, be like, because you get too close to the painting and all of a sudden you're like, yeah. like with a microscope combing over stuff and, and, um, and that, so it was, and it was like a really, it was an amazing time and it just cracked me up. One time I was in Ludlow Street uh, in New York City and like Paul called and I'm like, dude, this is just bizarre. Like I'm having a cup of coffee, Paul's calling me. And then he's like, oh wait, Phil wants to talk for you. And he's like, you know, he's just yelling, Jimmy's on the phone for whenever I were all the, the older dudes. It was like, I always became Jimmy automatically instead of Jim. And like, it was just, it was cool. And then through Phil, that's how I met uh, Larry Goldings because uh, Phil hired me for a session that uh, Larry was playing on. So that's, that's kind of where I first met him and then what led to think, you know, the record with Keltner. So it was like all these connections were really, it was an amazing time. Like, and, and only now do I look back at it and I'm like, I didn't realize how amazing it was now that Vincent's passed away and Phil passed away not long after we made that record together. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, 2013 is when he passed away, I believe. And that record's yeah. been like 2011 or 2012? Yeah, we were working on it. We started working on it like just at the very end of 2009 and, um, and then pretty much made it through 2010 and then it came out in 2011, so. Right. Yeah, see, that's yeah. a long time to work on a record. It's it is. It's a, oh my god, you know, it's like yeah. it's amazing. You know, for ten songs or something like that. You know, it's 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 really, you know, it, and it really, um, 
But I will say that, like, you know, it it was just an invaluable experience to to be sure. just hanging with those guys, and again, like, just to be up close, and then and then also to work in really great studios, and then we'd also record at Paul's Cottage, which was like, and Phil would pick the place where the you know where it sounded the best, and he, and again, he's just using his ears. He wasn't like, you know, and 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 I. And a couple of times he just wanted to do really minimal miking, and I thought I just thought that was super cool of him. It was like a little bit of that, you know, 1950s engineer coming out in a way, and just really like, hey, this is you know, and, and I think uh, I hope you know I, I feel like that's the best way to pick sounds, really, you know, instead of like like you're saying, fix it in the mix afterwards, you know, it's like get the sound source right going in. That's another thing that he used to tell me. He would just like try and get the sound source going in, so you never have to use EQ on it. And exactly. and then you're and and I think that's like and that I've always tried to you know keep that in mind. You know, because it was just like once you start sculpting it, and then you you might change other frequencies, and then you're sort of chasing. You know, it's just best to get the sound you want going in without touching it. And I thought like, man, that's, it's such a simple idea, but it is. It, and it's amazing how many guys don't go out into the room and listen yeah. to what the drums sound like where you're standing or listen to what the guitar sounds like where your ears are, not just where the mic is in front dead on the center of the speaker. Now I put the mic dead on the center of the speaker quite often, but it's because I yeah. want that sound and I know what that sounds like. I'll also put mics by my ears quite often or whatever. If you yeah. don't know how it sounds totally. in the room, how are you going to do yeah. the job? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah absolutely. So it, it's it's sort of like, and again, I, I, I feel like because we do have so many options, I, I've tried to be like, well, you know, his advice and everything he talked about, those were really like gold nuggets. Like, and then when I go to make my own records, I try and yeah. sort of, you know, not get into that. Like, cause then, cause then, you, you know, it's almost like you're making a sound painting rather than a record or something, mm. you know, where you're just sort of, you know, it's like a photographer just shooting to edit. That never made sense to me. Like, and fixing mm. everything in Lightroom, it's like, it's like get maybe just get the picture the way you as close as you can and then of course a little you know if you want to touch up a few things that's the beauty of the world that we live in but when it's you know it, you know i guess it's a difference between like a record being like a a, a natural human or like a cyborg you know where yeah. everything is like the the technology starts to encroach on the humanity a little bit too much you know yeah one thing I'm curious about when you're playing multiple instruments on a record, like playing drums and bass or and guitar, do you give consideration to like if you're playing drums first or something like along to a Paul scratch guitar or your scratch guitar, do you give consideration to what you're going to play on bass later or or, you know, how do you approach playing with yourself? I know that sounds terrible. But... Yeah. Well, no, I mean, it's it's like, you know, well, after I take a shower with myself, then I. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but it's a it's a really interesting question because um you can kind of trip yourself up with that and i think that that's where like um when i forget what year it came out but like that stacks collection of it was like an eight cd set of of um 
the earliest stack sides. Mm. And um, to me, that was really, really important. I, I, list, I must have listened to that more at that period of time than anything else, just because I thought like how interesting Booker T and the MGs, most of the time there were rhythm sections on that, Donald Duck Dunn is, is, is how they left space for each other and how simple things kind of connected, you know, how they would connect grooves. And so um, listening to all that sort of stuff, I mean, like there's one track where we did where the, you know, I laid down some guitar, Vincent lays down some guitar, Paul laid some guitar down. And then, um, then, then we put, or, or it was like, I can't remember, this is a while ago. So, or it was like drums and guitar first, and then more guitar got added onto that. And then on that thing, the bass was the, the last thing that I put on. And, and at that point, it was just like trying to find the most simple pattern that would like lay down the groove. So it, it really is, I think more than anything, is really paying attention to different styles of music and how the rhythm section works and how, um, and just how the bass and the drums and the guitar, they all lock in with each other, you know? So that, so I, I, I know that's probably not the best answer to your question, but it's, it's, it's hard to explain, but I really just use what other people have done in the past as a template and, sure. and, and just make sure that I'm just leaving space for everything that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, obviously it depends on what order it all goes down in and what the desired goal and all those things are. And you're drawing on your influences and your experiences, but there's, there's that weird thing. Like even sometimes, you know, this experience, I'm sure when you track with the band and the solo doesn't get done live, it's going to be an overdub solo. And sometimes the band will yep. fakely improvise as if a solo is happening to raise dynamics, to make things happen, yeah. even though the solo is going to come in later, you know, there's got right. to be, yeah. there's, there's, it's weird doing that. And it must be some of that feeling, you know, playing drums with no bass and knowing the bass is just going to have to now be stuck to what the drums do to some degree and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and again, it's, I think it's like, and in that situation, Paul is pretty um, clear about what he has envisioned in it. So he never liked, he never liked things to be too cluttered anyway, you know? So it was sort of like, it, again, it was trial and error, but I remember on the afterlife just really, um, it was nerve wracking actually, because the last thing that needed to be put on that was bass. And then it's like, Phil Ramone and Paul and Vincent standing there and I'm like in the room with them all and they're expecting, you know, and I'm like coming up with a bass part. And then I played something and Vincent was just like, no, that's it. Let's use that. And so um, I have to say that, you know, it's sort of if, you know, again, it's, it's like we live in a time of so much information, uh, information about how to play any instrument you want. I mean, there's lessons for yeah. free on YouTube all day long. And, uh, and then, so, but I think like, it's, it's almost like some, again, like Al Jackson and Donald Duck Dunn, if you listen to those grooves and those bass lines, it's really simple, but what, you know, but it's their time feel that just makes it feel so good. So I think you could also, if stuff is grooving and everything has a pulse, I think you can get away with, 
things being a little bit busier also, but I, I guess, um, yeah, listen to Tower in a way we're like, and rest in peace, Rocco. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it's like traveling down the rabbit hole. It comes down to this, like, well, is it grooving though? Cause something could be simple and not grooving and something could be really complicated and that grooves really hard. So if everything feels good, you can kind of get away with, it's amazing. Again, this, you know, getting back to the rhythm aspect of it all, how, um, you know, just, just how important that is just time and feel in, in, yeah. in everything on all instruments, you know? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Well, that's cool. Yeah. Man. Thank, thank you. Um, that's a fascinating process to that whole record and everything. Let's, uh, let's yeah. dive into these 10 questions. Cause I want to know the answers to some of these. Okay. When you first started learning guitar, let's just stick with guitar and not whatever I could, I guess could be whatever, but what was the first thing that when you got it under your fingers and you, you figured it out, it was like that pride, that moment of just, I can't believe I got this. This is the coolest thing ever. You know, you're hooked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it was more like, um, and it was funny cause at the time, uh, it was just like, we were having a jam session at, at my house and I was probably, I forget when it was, maybe I was 12 years old and all of a sudden I had listened to a lot of blues guitar and I always liked that music, but then we were just playing a blues and I, I was, I was, I just, it was the first time that I ever took a solo on guitar and then it was like, my friends were like, man, that sounds pretty good. And I was like, yeah, I, I felt really good. And so it wasn't like um, I learned a lick or another person's solo or anything like that. It was just this weird thing where I was like, man, this improvising thing or playing over changes or just, you know, and of course I'm just playing like a blues scale or something like that, but it just felt so good. And I just felt like, man, I kind of want to chase this more. And, and that was kind of like the aha moment uh, yeah. that for me, where, where it kind of just made me realize like it just, I remember uh, distinctly just it feeling a certain way and feeling really cool and free. And, uh, and it was like, man, I kind of want more of that. So, yeah, yeah it really, it, it is like the second you improvise something uh, and you know, you know that you kind of pulled something off, like where did yeah. that come from? And it works, you know? And, and it's like, it's kind of like there's no turning back once once that happens you you end up chasing that kind of for the rest of your life <laughs> right yeah amazing all right so that leads to the second question was there any solo that you ever learned note for note was there a first solo that you, you were so enamored with you had to learn it yeah and it was um it's a really interesting answer because it's this sydney boucher tune called blue horizon which is okay. a, a he he takes a solo on clarinet like he usually plays soprano yeah. uh but on this one track i mean and this gets back down to the simplicity of it i mean it's not a fast tune at all but like when i heard that solo i was like man that's that sounds like a guitar solo to me and uh and it uh it laid really well on guitar actually i, I don't think i remember it now but i learned that whole solo and it and it and it was just sort of like um, really kind of early jazz, you know, way before bebop, that style. 
is yeah. so interesting. And so that was the first thing. And then I, I really, I've always kind of connected with those pre-bebop players, you know, yeah. where it was just, uh, just the way that they would approach, um, they would approach a blues. It, you know, it, it wasn't so like, I mean, if you like go to learn like a Charlie Parker solo, it's just like, you know, it's, it, it, it's in another wheelhouse, but, mm -hmm. but the, the, that early time period, you know, there was less less differences between country blues and jazz it was oh yeah it was sort of all part of the same piece of leather so but that is a that's a really great blues solo and i and that was the first one that i learned yeah that's really cool man clarinet solo who would have thunk it yeah <laughs> clarinet on yeah. guitar <laughs> yeah on yeah on the guitar yeah that's a good one though all right so then What's the first thing you play now when you pick up a guitar? Do your hands just go somewhere automatically? Uh, you know, I just usually just play um, right through this whole pandemic. I just, when I pick up a guitar every day to practice, I'll just put on background tracks that I made to practice to. And it's, it seems like how this global pandemic has affected me is like, I don't have the motivation to learn anything new, like get another download or learn another solo or anything like that. So I, I just sort of like, I think it's more just like connecting with the instrument, going into this other place and just playing along mm. with these background tracks and just sort of like um, almost playing, you know, in some ways playing the same thing over and over every day, but, it, but yet, you know, and then sometimes new things pop out of that. Sure. And uh, so that's, so right now that would be my answer is, is just sort of like, um, and then, yeah, but I mean, I did hook up a telly with a, with a Bigsby on it. So I'd just be sitting there with like a lot of reverb, you know, like playing that, but, but mainly like it's, if, it's just. What about if you go to a guitar store and you're going to try a guitar, do you have something yeah. that you always do to kind of tell if you like that guitar? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Let me know if you could hear. Um, oh, yeah, I hear it. Is that loud enough? I hear it plenty, yeah. So it's like something like... skip james lick yeah, yeah in a way but i i kind of like that's if i'm playing acoustic or that that's sort i'd always play something like that if i go to check out a guitar what does that tell you about a guitar how do you know if it's good or bad when you play that well it it's sort you? of like yeah i mean i think that's sort of like and i hope this like whenever i play that lick I'm, i always just feel like it's um What's the word? I just feel like it's um, it's like if I can't feel good playing that lick on a guitar, then it's probably not the guitar for me. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Like yeah, it's like, yeah, and, yeah. and if that little lick feels good, then I, I I know that I'll probably be able to get everything else out of it. So that That's you know, good. And, all right, cool. It's a control. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I like it, and it's a cool lick. Um, do you have? a key style song groove that's like a constant 
narration that happens during the day? Like when you're driving your car or when you're cooking, are you hearing something, an improv or a groove, a beat? I'm hearing a shuffle pretty much 24 hours a day, usually with like yeah. Charlie Parker-ish improv over it. Something like, it just goes 24 hours a day. You got anything like that? Yeah. Um, man, I don't, I, that's a good question because I don't, no one has ever asked me that before. I mean, I, geez, it's, I think like, um, you know, I, it, I think it's more like, now that I'm working on some stuff, um, I've just sort of been going back to real early rural American music. So that's sort of been what's in my mind, like when I wake up and just these, just sort of like a couple of recordings where it's just like voice and clapping. And I, and, uh, and so that, that that's kind of like the, the, I guess if something's, gonna come out of the blue and just be in my head just because i've been listening to so much of that stuff now that's sort of what is in my head so nice nice yeah you could have worse things going on in there than that. yeah totally <laughs> yeah um number five when did you feel like you started to maybe find a personal voice on the guitar was there a moment where something clicked and you felt like you know what? I should maybe go further down this road. I like where this is taking me. Yeah, I mean, I did play with a pick for a while, and then I got really into Chet Atkins, and then I saw that he played. You know, I mean, growing up uh, on the East Coast, it's like not only anybody played an electric with a thumb pick. You know, so mm -hmm. it was sort of like getting into the Chet Atkins world, and then playing. Um, sort of just trying to invent a way to play guitar you know and like roots music without a pick and then i remember at the time i had bought some like robin ford lesson or something like that and then i started to learn some of those licks and i was like uh-oh i was like this sounds so much like robin ford because well it is robin ford you know but like you know it's like it's almost like dude, you're going to sound like Robin Ford, or, you know, everybody's going to say like, you're, you sound like Robin Ford because you're just playing Robin Ford licks. So I actually put the book down and was like, I need to just kind of come up with my own thing based around this finger picking stuff. So that there was a moment where it was like, uh, you know, I, 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 I sort of wanted to sound like myself and not, um, and not, like, you know, even though I had my idols or whatever, he's one of my idols, but, um, Mine so that, too. that was at that point. And then it was funny. I mean, I never thought that I would record with him, but he, I, I he was able, you know, I asked him and he played a couple, uh, uh, tracks with me on guitar on this last project that I did. And then hearing mm -hmm. us solo next to each other, I was like, oh man, it's like, it's, I thought it was complimentary. And I, I, you know, and I, I was like so influenced by him, but I, I felt like, my own style came out in that. So I think it's, it, I hope that answered your question. I'm trying it my does. best to yeah. answer your question. Okay. No, it does. And, and Robin was big for me, and not just in the vocabulary, but in Robin was really big for me in showing me it was okay to like play what you were hearing and to learn more stuff and like become real 
you know, a real knowledgeable musician, it didn't mean you were abandoning the blues because he loves the blues and feels it and does has done his homework as much as anybody ever has. So yeah, that that's was right. important yeah. for me when I found that with Robin. Yeah. 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 All right. Number six, what do you consider your biggest weakness on the guitar? Oh man, I think it would be my mind. Um, where, where it's sort of like, because if I let, if I can, sometimes I can psych myself out. And so, and that, and that's when I, what I mean to say is, is when I don't trust myself enough. And so it's a, maybe an odd, uh, answer to your question, but it's like, I guess I bring that up because I had, I feel like I, I am going for my own voice and I, I i'm not necessarily like uh, um i don't know like some guys i feel like they can play everything jazz blue you know like they're like a super chameleon and yeah. um and and then i think it's it's like when i can sometimes it's just like it's okay to just chase after what i really love to play on the guitar and then when i and i guess it's like the times that i second guess myself that yeah. that is my weakness where it's like you know, because we, I say that because we have a short time here on, you know, planet Earth. It's, it's temporary. And uh, I think it's just okay to chase what, you know, anyone feels like they're most connected to. So that, yeah. I think, yeah, the times when I sort of don't trust myself enough is, is my weakness. Yeah, it's not always a musical thing. I, I, I get it. it it's a, a, a state of mind or, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, something holds holds you back or whatever. I get it. Yeah. 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 Who's an, a huge influence on your guitar playing that would be a surprise to people? Oh, um, you know, Tony Iommi, actually. Oh, from that, that's a surprise to me. Okay. Okay, and the reason why I like him so much is, is well, his story is so. Uh, crazy where he was able to overcome the tips of his fingers getting chopped off and like you know and then is like one of the big you know enters into one of the biggest heavy metal bands of all time and where i know they don't like to be called heavy metal but you know it, it yeah. and, and and the thing that i like about him is getting back to that uh simplicity thing you know yeah it's, it's just just like his ability to play these riffs and then Anytime that I've seen an interview with him where he's just with his guitar and he's playing those riffs, I just think of how good his time is, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I really like his solos and I, I, I just really appreciate his whole, his whole approach to the guitar, you know? Yeah. His solos tell great stories. Yeah. 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 But that is a surprise to me. So that's a good answer. Uh, you got me. <laughs> okay. All right, number eight. Would you rather have a great guitar and a shitty amp, or vice versa, a great amp and a shitty guitar on a gig situation? I would rather have like a great amplifier and a and a, you know, I mean, it's got to play like okay, but give right. me a give me a parts caster and a great amp over like a, a nineteen sixty one three thirty five and a and a crap crappy amp. You know, I'm with you a hundred percent, but it's been split down. <laughs> okay. The middle. It's been split. Yeah. Okay. I, oh, interesting. Okay. 
the audience will get a better show out of me with whatever guitar and a good amp that I that I can get the sound I'm used to out of versus yeah. my own guitar and some piece of junk. Like absolutely. Right. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Yep, I'm with you 100%. All right, number 9. What keeps you pushing, especially in a pandemic, but what keeps you like working on new things and wanting to be better? than you are today um wow uh that's a light question <laughs> um, <No shit>. the, <laughs> <laughs> um i think i think uh without getting too heavy i think it is an understanding of like you know that life is kind of temporary and that i know like i know we talked about it one time where it's like how many years, you know, do I have 35 years left where my hands work really good yeah. before they don't work so well anymore, you know? And, um, and so I think it's this sort of like knowing that I have limited time to do stuff. And then I think it's just, again, it's like, I like finding combinations. Uh, and, and, and again, it's like, like I'm, I'm really happy that you connected with that uh, "Kiss the Shaman" record because um, that was sort of like that's the kind of stuff that keeps me going. And and like or this last project I did where, um, and also I got I was able to get that uh, the legendary pedal steel player named Lloyd Green to play a solo on it. And like, but but that whole record is pretty left to, or that EP is left to center, and it's like finding things that don't necessarily work together, but yet it works together. Like, you know, it's like Robin Ford and Lloyd Green on the same project, but yet mm -hmm. it, it kind of works. And I think like that kind of uh, stuff is the, is the stuff that kind of drives me. And I, I like to see those incarnations happen, you know? Nice. All right. Well, then that leads me to number 10. Do you have a five-year plan? Is there a bunch of shit you want to accomplish you know, that you're looking forward to crossing off or is it keep on keeping on, see what happens? What's, what's the five-year plan? Well, that's another, um, you know, it's a hard question to answer in this global pandemic because I've been trying to not think about the future, like at all. <laughs> like, you know, I'm just trying to do like, okay, I made it through today. All right. What can we do tomorrow that, you know, it's like go to the gym, work out, stay positive, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but really, um, man, I, I mean, it's like, I, I played guitar, bass and drums on a Paul Simon record. I made a record with Jim Keltner and Larry Goldings on it, my own record. And then I recently got to record with, you know, Robin Ford and Lloyd Green. And like, I'm, I'm kind of feel like I, I really got to do this shit that I wanted to do. I feel really good about, um, sort of what I accomplished. So anything else that ha happens, it's sort of like, um, it's just sort of frosting on the cake, you know? So I, I, That's a healthy I, attitude. I, I, yeah. And, and, uh, I'm really, I'm really happy, um, with that, you know, and it's, it's like whether stuff becomes popular or not, it, at least I was able to, uh, I was able to do all the stuff that I wanted to do. You know, I, I got to live my dream really and uh and so you know that that so that that's maybe at some point i have this idea that i would maybe like to teach at some place and maybe you know 
because uh, uh, I, I genuinely enjoy teaching and maybe pass some stuff on. And uh, mm -hmm. so, but yeah, I, I'm just, right now I'm just waiting to see what the world does. And I hope that there's a place for musicians and music left in it, you know? Yep. Yeah, meet you and me both, my friend. You and me both. Yeah. Well, we made it to the end of the 10 questions. So for members... Nice. If you hang on, we will have an extra video for you, the turn two video that you should know by now. But if you're not a member, become one by clicking join or at least subscribe. Come on. But we will have links to all things Jim Oblon in the description here. So you will be able to get his records, his True Fire courses, which are excellent, and uh, all things oh, thank Jim. You, Josh. So, dude, thank you for doing this, man. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and thanks for taking the time out of your day. Oh, yeah. Thank you for having me, Josh. It's, it's a pleasure. Yeah. And members, we will be right back. Okay.